Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, an international team heads for Ukraine to evaluate the dangers of a nuclear meltdown in the war zone. Also, a coalition of activists are calling on Natural Resources Secretary uh, Wade to support an emergency pause in logging in Jackson uh, State Forest. Uh, also, by the way, back to nuclear, uh, the California governor backing a dangerous bailout at Diablo Canyon. We're going to talk about that as well. And we're going to hear about the National Chicano Human Rights Council as it commemorates the, and celebrates the anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I think I got a few marbles in my mouth, but it is good to have you with us. This is the Pacifica Radio Network. Uh, we broadcast to you over KPFA in the Bay Area. We are live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles. We are delighted to have you along. Uh, many people are not delighted uh, with the fact that the governor of California has now uh, taken a very strong stand to uh bail out very dangerous nuclear reactors in California. Meanwhile, it's a double nuclear threat because over in uh, Ukraine land, uh, there's a battle going around, going on around a nuclear power plant that has uh, turned into a seriously uh, a nuclear meltdown waiting to happen. So let's start in the Ukraine, and then we're going to work our way back to the United States. Uh, joining us to talk about both these issues is uh, Kevin Camps. Uh, Kevin Camps works with uh, Beyond Nuclear. He is the radioactive waste specialist for the group. And also joining us is longtime anti-nuclear activist Harvey Wasserman, who's also a pro-solar uh, visionary. Uh, welcome to both of you, Kevin. Uh, we're Thanks, Dennis. Learning that uh, the, uh, the the advisors from the United Nations, from the Atomic uh, uh, Agency, the Inspection Agency, have arrived in the region. Why are they there, and what can they do? What are the dangerous? Uh, what might they do in the middle of this war zone? Well, the team from the International Atomic Energy Agency is comprised of its uh, Director General uh, Rafael Grossi. And 13 others have gone with him. And um, so what can they do? Well, the IAEA, unfortunately, is a very pro-nuclear institution. They actually um, promote nuclear power. But in this circumstance, for many weeks and even months now, uh, Director Grossi has been warning the world about the situation at Zaporizhia and before that at Chernobyl. So they're going in there, and they claim that they will be a stabilizing force. They are going to look at the safety, the security, and the safeguards. What safeguards refers to is there are nuclear materials at the Zaporizhia site that could be uh, used in nuclear weaponry, potentially. I mean, there's enriched uranium. There's plutonium. So they're going to be looking at that, too. But their presence there just kind of maybe takes it down a notch because both the Ukrainians in the territory they control – and the Russians in the territory they control, which is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the Russian military controls it. They have to ensure the safety of this 14-person uh, IAEA delegation. Please explain 
the specific dangers that we're talking about. Um, I, I don't want to be alarmist, but I really want people to get a sense of how close we are and what kind of fire we're playing with. So just take a minute to explain that for us. Well, uh, a case in point would be last Thursday, Friday, where the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant lost all electricity from the external grid. And that is the primary electricity used to run safety and cooling systems, not only on operating reactors, and two of the six are still operating, but also at other places in the nuclear power plant, like the high-level radioactive waste storage pools. So that's already a very serious situation where you lose external grid power to run those safety and cooling systems. So fortunately, though, the backup emergency diesel generators at the plant, and it's interesting, I didn't realize this until this news broke, but there are three emergency backup diesel generators at each of the reactors, which is good news because in the U.S. only two are required. And the thing about emergency diesel generators is that they are infamous for not working when called upon. So thankfully, they did work this time. They were able to continue running the safety and cooling systems. But it just shows what a dangerous situation it is. Apparently, three of the four high-voltage transmission lines that are in place at Zaporizhia to be the primary source of electricity for cooling and safety Three of the four have been severed, uh, whether due to direct military attack, whether that was intentional or accidental. And also there are fires that are burning in the area, so fire could have taken out these lines. So it's a very dicey situation to just have one external power line, because if you lose it like they just did a few days ago, you're immediately thrown on the diesel generators, and you better hope they work, and you better hope they don't run out of diesel fuel. Well, at this point, it looks like the Russians are using the plant as a protective shield, uh, and and essentially the battles are happening with the plant right in the middle. Is it possible that the wrong kind of weaponry, the wrong kind of explosive coming from one side or another, could cause a dangerous nuclear reaction of some sort, or is that does it take more than that? No, it's absolutely a danger, and unfortunately, for for days and weeks even, it has become a regular thing for the, the shells to fall on the nuclear power plant complex itself. It's become almost a daily occurrence. In fact, there's satellite imagery that show that since last week, there have been some holes punched in the roof of a special building at the plant, apparently used for the storage of fresh nuclear fuel, which is the only good news Fresh nuclear fuel is radioactive, um, but mildly so when compared to fuel that's been in a reactor core. That's high-level radioactive waste. But even the dry cask storage, the concrete and steel cylinders at Zaporizhia have been hit by shelling. And the word is that there's not elevated radiation levels. But for shells to be falling like this at a nuclear power plant, with it's the biggest nuclear power plant, not only in Ukraine, but in Europe. It has six reactors, all the waste that's been generated there since the mid-1980s. Uh, this is a very dangerous situation. And don't take it from me. Take it from the IAEA. They've been raising these warnings for many weeks now. Wow. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Also joining us is Harvey Wasserman. Before we jump uh, to the domestic problems, Harv, uh, your thoughts on what's going on in terms of uh, uh, 
what's happening uh, in Ukraine now, your concerns? I know you're following both sides of this. It's totally terrifying, Dennis. I mean, there's six reactors there. They all have way more radiation um, in their uh, on their site than uh, than at Chernobyl, and uh, you know Chernobyl happened. Nobody was flinging uh, uh, weapons at each other. No one was shelling the place. Uh, they, you know, we could get a ma- major disaster without all this military stuff. But here you have 400 reactors worldwide, 92 in the United States. Every one of them is vulnerable to this kind of craziness. And uh, of course, it's accelerated now in Ukraine, but people have been warning about this for a long time. And um, uh, it's a catastrophe. Uh, We're all on pins and needles. It's outrageous. Well, uh, I know that you feel a bit of outrage given what's happening in uh, domestic United States with nuclear. It seems that uh, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom is trying to really essentially throw the major block uh, against those who think maybe solar or other forms of renewable energy might be safer than nuclear. But Gavin Newsom now seems hell-bent on uh, perpetuating of the nuclear industry. You want to let, remind people what the situation is, lay it out again, uh, because many people don't know what's really going on and how dangerous it is. Well, Gavin Newsom has decided to run for president. He's, he's getting the... He wants the backing of the big bucks from the utility industry and from the nuclear industry. And so we have these two reactors surrounded by earthquake faults at San Luis Obispo. They are old. They are cracked. They are uh, uh, embrittled. Uh, it could not be a, a more insane situation. And now uh, in 40F, he participated and signed the deal that, uh, that decided to get these two reactors shut down in an orderly sane manner. And uh, it's a legal document dating back to 2018. And now this guy who was lieutenant governor at the time wants to keep the Abla open. At the same time, they're killing rooftop solar. It's unbelievable. The CPUC has in front of it from the governor a list of um, uh, taxes and uh, givebacks that would uh, destroy the rooftop solar industry in California which is the number one way to fight global warming, the number one way to guarantee a a safe, secure, and decentralized energy supply. Rooftop solar is a massive success all over the world. There are 70,000 people in California working in the wind and the solar industry, and this guy wants to destroy it with uh, taxes and, and give backs. At the same time, he's complaining we might not have enough energy so we got to keep the Abu Canyon open. But he's not going to insure those reactors. You can't drive your car in the state without insurance. But the Abu Canyon, which is being driven by a criminal organization, PG&E, twice bankrupt, twice convicted of manslaughter, federal charges. And here they are running the Abu Canyon, and they have no idea what they're doing. And Diablo now wants to be uh, you know, put forward by Newsom. And i got to tell you, Dennis, they turn, and the other people have examined the actual bill that he's pushing, which will be voted on Wednesday night. We are asking all Californians, call your senator, state senator, call your state rep, tell them to vote against this thing. The bill that they're pushing forward is a complete scam. It offers billions of dollars in hands out, handouts to PG&E, uh, way beyond just the nuclear issue. It's a complete ripoff. 
And they also want everybody in California to pay for these reactors. Even though they're in PG&E territory, they're owned by PG&E, they want, uh, Newsom wants everybody from the southern, the southern tip of California all the way up to the Oregon border to pay for Diablo Canyon, even though there's no insurance and the company running it is a criminal operation. It's outrageous. Are we clear? Is there a direct relationship between the industry and Newsom and the Newsom campaign? Uh, or is this just sort of his uh, uh, understanding intuitively what the corporations want? How, how does he, how could he step forward, take this action, and portray himself as a progressive? It's hard to imagine. It's a total scam. He's taken tons of money from PG&E over the years. He's yelled at them after they, oh, killed 80 people in Northern California or, oh, blew up eight people in San Bruno. But, you know, they, they are giving him tons and tons of money. And this puts him right in the on the gravy train uh, for the nuclear industry and the utility industry con- countrywide. Because Diablo is the premier nuclear plant. If he can turn around and say, hey, I kept these reactors open, um, you know, uh, in in the progressive state of California. He's just a scam artist. And the question is, what's going to happen when these things blow up? And and millions of people are exposed to radiation. Billions of dollars worth of property are destroyed. You know, it's an incomprehensible uh, disaster that that is highly likely to occur because of these reactors on earthquake faults. They're now 30 years old. They have no insurance. What is he thinking? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I want to bring Kevin Camps back into this. Um, Kevin, is is this, do you suppose, do you agree with Harvey? Is this as dangerous, as bad as Harvey is saying? And do you think what Newsom is doing, oftentimes California sets the tone, the pace. Do you think uh, Newsom is giving new life into an industry that's extremely dangerous and uh, has already created a great deal of suffering in the U.S. It's unthinkable what Governor Newsom is doing right now. He's reversed himself from before. This was a deal that was PG&E's idea in the first place. They approached environmental groups. They approached the workforce. They approached local municipalities. It took months, if not years, to hammer out this agreement to shut down at the end of their 40-year licenses in 2024, 2025. So this out of nowhere reversal from Gavin Newsom, it's not even clear that PG&E is interested, except it's going to be hard for them to turn down $1.5 billion of state taxpayer money. And then at the federal level, I mean, we're talking $79 billion of federal money now available to old reactors in this country to keep operating. So it'll be hard for a company like PG&E to turn down billions of dollars in handouts to them but the dangers can't be uh exaggerated you've got one of the most embrittled reactor pressure vessels in the country at um unit one so if they ever have to activate the emergency core cooling system and go from hot to cold in a great big hurry it would be like a hot glass under cold water only with a ton of pressure per square inch on that steel you could fracture the vessel and then you have a meltdown the only question is does the containment hold and then perhaps an even bigger risk than that are the indoor wet storage pools for high-level radioactive waste at Diablo, 
whether it's a terrorist attack or an earthquake, if one of those or both of those pools go up in flames, you're now looking at a mega catastrophe. And that's actually the same at Zaporizhia. The real mother load of radioactivity at Zaporizhia is in the high-level radioactive waste storage pools. I just heard Arnie Gunderson, a nuclear engineer on Nuclear Hot Seat podcast several days ago. He estimates there are 60 to 120 Chernobyl's worth of radioactivity in the Zaporizhia pools. Wow. Now, it, one is it a myth? Uh, we have often heard that what happened in Chernobyl, what happened at these reactors abroad, or can't happen because we have a we have a different level, a different quality of reactor, Kevin. No, it's not true. Um, in fact, there was a military production reactor in the U.S. up in Hanford, Washington that shut down the year after Chernobyl because it was so similar in design. So that was a wise move to shut it down. Uh, Fukushima Daiichi, the three meltdowns there, took place in a general electric boiling water reactor design. And we have dozens of those here in this country. And Zaporizhia is the, the Soviet-Russian version of our pressurized water reactor. And like I said, they have three emergency diesel generators per reactor at Zaporizhia. That is a smart thing. In case two of them break down, you still got one left. Here in the U.S., they only require two. And we've had near misses at Davis Bessie in Ohio, for example. It got hit directly by a tornado in 1998. And they couldn't rely on one diesel. It was down and out. It wasn't working. The other one kept overheating. And so it was a very dicey 48 hours at Davis Bessie in Ohio uh, in June of 1998. And they restored the grid an hour before that second diesel died and would not come back from the dead. So we've had near misses here. And we've had two, reactors, the... two reactors in the U.S. have already been damaged by earthquakes. Perry and, the Perry Is nuclear it... plant and North Anna, Virginia are already both uh, da- damaged by earthquakes. So, we, we're, you know, we're next in line here in California. Is it still the case, uh, and both of you can respond, that the U.S. taxpayer pays the insurance bill or the reactors don't open. In other words, they're so dangerous that uh, the reactors and the corporations that run them can't get the insurance they need uh, from private uh, corporations that would cover them. They need to deal with the U.S. government. Is that right? The Apple Canyon has no insurance. No insurance. They made a deal in 1957. The Fed said, okay, we can't get insurance now, but 15 years from now, you can get insurance. That was, you know, 1957. That's 65 years ago. They still can't get insurance. And uh, and and so, God forbid, if there's a 13 billion dollar fund, which will maybe cover half of Ababa Beach. So, God forbid, if if the worst case scenario happens at Diablo Canyon and the the earthquakes uh, re- remove the pl- re- uh, render the place into a pile of rubble, and a cloud comes out, which we know it will which will go down to L.A. and beyond and then back around through the Central Valley and then up to the um, uh, Bay Area, the incalculable damage will have zero, zero insurance. You lose your house, Dennis, you lose uh, your property, you lose your health, nobody is going to reimburse you because these guys are not responsible, and it's outrageous. 
Kevin, final final word at this point. Your your concern, if you were the advisor to the governor, what would be your hardest uh, take in terms of trying to restrain him? Uh, to listen to his earlier self from 2016 and do the right thing and allow these plants to retire as scheduled. 2024, 2025 was already a compromise. These dangers of earthquakes, terrorist attacks are going on as we speak, as it's still operating. So to operate another couple, three years was already risky. But to go another 10 beyond that is just insanity. Amazing. All right, listen, I want to thank both of you, Harvey Wasserman, Kevin Camps. Harvey, did you want to get a final? Are you, you're trying to get people to do something? Yeah, people need... Uh, what's, we have two days. Go. We have two days to stop this. People need to call your senators and your reps, your state senators and your state reps. Don't bother calling Newsom. He's a lost cause. But your state senators and reps, he has to get two-thirds majority in both houses. And so we could conceivably win this, but we need our state uh, representatives and state senators to say no to this guy and let's stop this craziness. God, I keep hearing Phil Oak's song in my head. I don't have it queued up here. Love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I've got to get those words out and read them to the folks. Thank you, Harvey. Uh, thank you, Kevin Camps. Appreciate both of your uh, incredibly good work, important work, important research. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to remember uh, the the moratorium, the uh, essentially an incredibly important uh, event, the National Chicano uh, Moratorium, and it's uh, something to remember. We'll be back. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. Happy to welcome back to these airwaves an old friend of the show, Gabriel Hernandez, longtime activist, labor organizer, uh, and just an all around uh, incredible human being. Uh, Gabriel Hernandez, I know uh, that you have been working with the National Chicano Human Rights Council in the commemoration of the Chicano Moratorium. Good to have you back with us. Before we jump into that, I know that uh, you were uh, paying attention over the last couple of weeks. We've been covering the uh, Farm Worker uh, March for Worker Rights. Uh, what you, th- you were you were a part of that? You were on that. What did you think about that? Uh, it was amazing to see Dolores Huerta out there in the late eighties uh, making the making the declarations and standing for the people. Yeah, no. How you doing, Dennis? Um, good to be back on the airwaves. Um, always appreciate the the time 
Yeah, um, yeah. This past uh, week, um, being out there, um, you know, the estimates, you know, in the thousands. Um, uh, good to just see all the different people converge onto the park uh, on the last day and march to the Capitol. Um, you know, again, very powerful um, moment when you have all the UFW flags in front of the Capitol with the stage set, um, and you know, all all kinds of people there um, supporting the the struggle of the. The farm workers, you know, again, um, I worked on the UFW campaign down in the Watsonville Strawberry um, campaign. And so, you know, just um, any kind of um, uh, workers' rights uh, for that type of work is, is always um, very important. And a lot of times, you know, it's it's uh, that group of invisible workers that, that people don't think about. But again, they're the ones that, you know, put the food on the table. And, and so always important to be out there. Well, what is up with the governor? We were supposed to know by, I think, today whether he was going to sign on and uh, allow farm workers to have uh, the rights that other workers have. But I haven't heard anything. Have you? No, no. And, you know, again, um, I'm hoping we're not going to get disappointed. Um, You know, a lot of people are are talking that, you know, he has to walk that fine line between being governor and, and, you know, his aspirations of, you know, maybe being president or whatever, even though he claims that that may not be true. But, you know, again, everything he's doing right now is um, under a microscope because of that. And so I think um, that's how uh, he may be making his decisions is contemplating, you know, what impact that might have nationally. Um, again, uh, he he could stand up and, and be the governor that he needs to be, especially here in California, um, you know, supporting um, uh, these type of workers and their and their rights to be able to unionize, be able to organize, and be able to have a, a say in terms of the conditions of their work. I mean, talk about, you know, the, the type of work that, that they do out in the fields. Uh, many people wouldn't be able to handle it, uh, let alone... Um, organize around it and, and and try and improve it, right? It's amazing. Well, listen, let's uh, talk a little bit about the Chicano Moratorium and remind people uh, exactly what we're talking about um, because it was an incredibly important uh uh, time in history. I'm always remembering Ruben Salazar. I wish I'm. I would love to get permission to uh, rename our studios the Ruben Salazar Studios uh, for journalism. But remind people. Remind people what was going back late sixties. Uh, there was a an emergence, uh, a revolutionary, a revolution in the Chicano in the Latino community. Talk about it. Set the scene for us. People don't know this history. Yeah, no, you know, again, um, we've, um, since 1980, actually, have commemorated uh, since the 10th anniversary on an annual basis here in the Bay Area, uh, Chicano Moratorium Day. We call it, you know, August 29th, um, the actual day, 1970. um, uh, And, you know, the importance of the day, uh, for us, it's almost like a memorial day um, because of the unfortunate things that, that played out that day. Uh, during that time, you know, again, in, at the peak of the Vietnam War, um, you know, thousands and thousands of, of people were being uh, sent to the war. And in our community, um, you know, disproportionately being killed at his rates as high as 20 percent when we didn't even uh, uh, represent, you know, 10 percent of the, the U.S. population. Um, our our uh, soldiers, you know, again, were the tunnel rats. They were the ones that 
sent us into the the tunnels to uh, try and um, uh, pursue the Vietnamese. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, if you know, you had all these exemptions back in the day, right? You know, if you were going to college, you were exempt. If you were the only child, you were exempt. All these things. But for our people, you know, those things never played out. We weren't wealthy. We didn't have, you know, senators as fathers and whatnot. And so, um, again, you know. Uh, during that whole uh, time, uh, as each year passed on and the, and the thousands of uh, soldiers were being killed and the body bags were coming home, you know, um, eventually the, the community began to, to rise up. And in that, the, uh, there was a series, a call for a series of what they called moratoriums, where they were asking people to organize, um, you know, mobilizations, uh, calling moratorium on the war, ending the war, you know, um, fighting for peace. And so in the Chicano movement, um, a, a number of different um, organizations and movements from all of the different kinds of states, whether it was Texas or Arizona or New Mexico, California, um, they all converged. They did smaller series of, of them, but um, it built up to the 1970, August 29th one, where uh, tens of thousands of Rasa came together in Los Angeles. Um, you know, and again, peaceful protest you know those you know families involved in all of this um but because of the i believe the you know the the organization of it and the the um the climax of that and you know just you know thousands and thousands of of, of chicanos and brown people within the united states protesting at that level they had to figure out they being the government had to figure out how to smash something like that what they ended up doing is uh, the sheriff's um um, what we call police riots, right? Um, you know, a lot of times they just call them riots, but this was a police riot where the police came in and attacked the the marching rally and, you know, uh, attacked the families um, and eventually ended up killing uh, several people. Um, uh, Angel Diaz, uh, Lynn Ward, Lynn Ward, a uh, 15-year-old uh, brown break girl was killed. But um, the, the important and kind of... Uh, targeted uh, killing was that of Ruben Salazar. He was one of the first um, uh, Raza Latino um, journalists for the LA Times writing about police brutality. And again, 1970, writing about police brutality. Not like, you know, you see the day and, you know, how, how it's uh, pumped up. This is, you know, again, the media is very uh, limited and isolated. And so for him to put himself out there and report on what's going on with the LAPD and things of that sort... Um, they clearly um, targeted him. They went to a, uh, the Silver Dollar Saloon where he was at and ended up shooting him, uh, according to them, accidentally in the back of the head with a tear gas canister. Um, and so, yeah. again... Um, at close range, right? yeah. Right? You know, they didn't miss, right? They didn't miss. No one ever went to jail for that. No, you know, the, there was a whole inquiry around that, thousands of... Uh, pages of testimony and you know hundreds of witnesses and so on and so forth and nothing ever played out nothing, no one was ever uh, held to account for that um but again we you know it's an important day for us because of all the different people that have sacrificed themselves and and have been put out there and have done you know given their lives um you know again for the betterment of the the people and so always remembering august 29th um as as chicano moratorium day um, and in fact, we just held a, a, a ceremony, a sunrise ceremony over at Hummingbird Park in San Francisco uh, the weekend before 
um, to commemorate the moratorium. Um, and as you know, our friend Tony Gonzalez was there, uh, Concha Salcedo, a number of people, um, uh, you know, Francisco Complice, who was actually at the moratorium. We had different speakers. Nancy Hernandez, uh, a youth organizer at the time, now she's in her 40s, um, talking about the history and things mm-hmm. of that sort. It's a very, very important day for uh, to, to remember. And it was, and just to emphasize that you mentioned youth organizer, the the schools, the high schools emptied out right as a part of this that special day. So the streets were filled with, the schools were empty, and the streets were filled with proud Latinos, Chicanos who for the first time were feeling their power and you you mentioned the assassination i see it as an assassination of ruben salazar um but he he was high profile he wasn't only a a la times journalist right he was on television so people yeah. really knew who he was and he had it, it wasn't just the paper he was uh he was he was very high profile so they took him out on purpose it was almost as if this is you want to celebrate your youth and your and your chicano uh, background well this is what's going to happen if you get too proud it was so it, was, yeah. uh, it really many people felt it was an example this is what's going to happen if you express yourself no and, and in talking with families that were there and you know them bringing their children there and and them you know the children being endangered in a situation like that, you know, it had its effect, right? It had its effect on, on families because, again, here they were expressing, like, how, why would we be wanting to give our lives for this war that's playing out, you know, on, an, on another continent when we're not even being able to be buried in our own uh, cemeteries in the area. So even as the body bags came back, in in places like Texas, for example, you couldn't even bury the Chicano in the the so-called regular cemetery because it was you know the body was brown and so you know again just the discrimination and the racism that existed during the time um you know again you know why why given why are you taking our children to fight for this country that doesn't even respect the rights of our people here in the u.s you know and so i think that was you know racism even into death racism even into death segregation and racism that's incredible. It, it's it's very troubling, and you know with this this thing it, it, it continues. Um, you want your citizenship, you go fight for America, and then you don't even get your citizenship. In fact, you you don't even get it posthumously. Uh, well, well, what well, we have done. Go on. Yeah, yeah. No, what we have done in the Bay Area is again on an annual basis commemorate the day. And so throughout the years, you know, we've always held the rally, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller. But so, for example, when we invaded the uh, Iraq and, you know, the whole under the whole guise of, you know, ma- you know, weapons of mass destru- destruction and things of that sort, our, our moratorium day, that rally was literally one of the first anti-war um, rallies against, you know, the invasion in Iraq. So each year... There's always been um, some kind of issue that has come up that we've included as part of that program and to educate the community around those types of things. And so that's what's always been important, too, is that not only do we commemorate, you know, again, um, the loss of life and the sacrifices that the communities made on behalf of, of people, but also, you know, the, the current um, issues of the, the year, the current issues of the times, and raising those as part of that education, part of that rally, and part of that 
that ongoing um, commemoration. And so that's the other thing that um, that's always been very impressive is that, you know, even as we've gone through the generations, because uh, you could, again, I guess we get to, to age ourselves again, but starting in 1980 and doing an annual commemoration each year to 2022, you know, we've been, we've been still, um, you know, uh, holding some kind of ceremony, some kind of event to be able to, to commemorate that and, and again, to educate people about continuing the organizing. I remember a lot of people were very afraid after the, uh, the buildings got smashed in New York and everybody was freaked out because the government was going to come down and people didn't want to protest and was like all traumatized and, and afraid or whatever. And it's like, what the hell? What are you talking about? There's still things to protest. There's still injustice. We still have the right to, to speak against this government. And, you know, and I think that that's one of the things, again, that, that we've been able to do over the years is uh, show that fearlessness um, and, and that of the people. You know, before we say goodbye, there's one other issue here in the context of the governor uh, who it does appear that his stance dealing with ethnic studies was, again, uh, maybe perpetrated by what appears to be his own racism. But it is interesting that he has resisted a real... Uh, creating a real structure, a real program in the public schools for ethnic studies. I mean, it would seem to me uh, that that program could really bring some power uh, to the Chicano movement and to the moratorium. It could be certainly a chapter or two in a wonderful high school program, would you say? But it seems the governor isn't interested in that. You know, again, we don't need the governor to do that. We in nineteen in the early nineties um, did walk out and organize tens of thousands of young people from Sacramento down to even Salinas and in some pockets of the valley in, in San Diego and L.A. And we instituted, we organized ourselves as high school students and as young people and got ethnic studies in schools back in the nineties. So we've been doing ethnic studies since then. And so, yeah, and now those children that were in high school organizing that and, and trying to get ethnic studies implemented in the 90s are now the the state senators and assembly people who were actually, who got this thing pushed yes. through. And now it's at the governor's, yeah. you know, lap, right? And so it's like, you know, get over it. It's going to happen with or without him. <laughs> it will happen over time and people just need to get over it, right? And so I'm, I'm I have... I have no doubt that that's that's part of the curriculum that's that's going to be, and you know, again, when we were doing it in the early '90s, uh, it was Rasa studies, Rasa, but over the time uh, working with other communities, we moved that to ethnic studies and made that demand ethnic studies to include all other uh, peoples and, and histories and things of that sort. And so, regardless of the governor, it's going to happen. We're out of time, but just a sort of final response. When you, when you consider yourself and you say you're Chicano, what does that mean to you, Gabriel? I think, you know, again, people get caught up with, you know, the different labels that have been imposed on us. And for me, Chicano is just like a, a part of decolonization. It's a process that you recognize all the things that have been imposed on you for 500 plus years and, you know, all the different labels that they call you, all the derogatory ones, all the Hispanic ones, all the Latino ones and things of this sort. 
And this is one of those ones where, you know what, we'll name ourselves. We'll recognize that we're colonized. We'll recognize that a lot of things have been stolen from us, but we're still here. We're still here and we're not going away. We're Chicano. We're Chicana. Get over it. Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> we're glad uh, that uh, you could join us, uh, and then you never got over it. Um, and uh, we appreciate uh, uh, the the very precise perspective. We're going to keep this dollar going as we have for the last 30 years. It's probably what we did on the second show. Uh, and now 30 years later, we're doing it again. Thank you. Right? Thank you. Thank you for uh, being with us, Gabriel Hernandez. Long-time activist, labor organizer, revolutionary. Sometimes, um, would it be an overstatement to say like an emergency chauffeur for Dolores Huerta? <laughs> when when the time is Security. right and when your phone Security. rings. <laughs> yes. All right, Gabrielle. I gotta get there. I need you. Right. Okay. We appreciate it. You you stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you all. Adios. All right. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're gonna take a we're gonna take a two minute break now. And when we come back, so you can listen to a little music, when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, well, the battle to save the Jackson Demonstration State Forest battle going on there. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoint on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine over the Pacifica Radio Network. Well, tomorrow, Tuesday, August 29th, beginning at 11 a.m., members of the Coalition to Save Jackson Demonstration State Forest and their supporters will protest in front of the California Natural Resources Agency building, calling on Natural Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot to support the reinstatement of a pause in logging in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Joining us to talk about, there are many different groups involved here that will be protesting tomorrow. Joining us uh, with the Mama Tremendo group is Michelle McMillan. That's a lot of M's. Welcome, Mc- Michelle McMillan from Mama Tree. <laughs> Good to have you with us. I, I, got, I, I said it. <laughs> Welcome. Could you could you Thank orient you. Good uh, us? Good to have you with us. Tell us uh, where uh, we're talking about here geographically. Locate us, Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Where is it, and what's at the heart of the matter here? Of course. So, Jackson Demonstration State Forest is actually a forty-eight thousand six hundred and fifty-two acre forest in Mendocino County, California. It is by far the state's largest demonstration forest. Um, And the heart of the matter is how this land is being managed. For decades, actually, there's been contention that the management plan is out of date. Um, And despite all of that community pushback, there's been very little leeway made. Uh, In the recent movement, which is this one that we're in now, we've seen the most significant Uh, strides taken and the reason for the protest tomorrow is that kind of out of the blue despite all of this cal fire who manages the forest did announce that they're going to begin logging again and break that pause and what what is the justification is it about uh do they declare that it's a safety uh, operation why are they going to do this now what is the uh, word So the mandate for the forest um, makes it so that there must be commercial logging. And the idea for the demonstration forest originally, which, you know, sounds good in theory, is that it would be this area of land, um, and it's, it's redwood forest, there's some oak forest, that the state could manage sustainably for timber. And they would use that sustainable management as, you know, a demonstration, as in the name, to show the rest of the state, to show private timber companies the best ways to manage timberland. So that logging is, it's baked in. It's right in there at the start. Unfortunately, you know, their management plan is not as good as it should be for that premise. And they're also not living up to their own management plan. Now, the kind of the crux of this movement is that the Coyote Valley Band of Como, who do have, you know, ancestral claims to the land, have asked for co-management. They're not asking for land back yet, necessarily. They're asking for a seat at the table. And what they're being given, really frustratingly, is more of an advisory role. So while they want to be right in there from the beginning, deciding how this forest is going to be managed you know, starting yesterday and continuing to the future, 
they weren't even told that logging was going to begin again um, until we found, I think we all collectively found out in a newspaper article and a press release. Uh, so that's just really bad faith negotiations. I'm trying to understand. So what is driving them to take this action at this time? It seems to be a bit of uh, a surprise to the community as you are outlining it. Um, how do they, is this described as a necessary measure for safety given the nature of fires these days or what is the driving is it a corporate interest that's driving this what's your best understanding yeah that's that's a really good question um so the justification for resuming logging is that when this movement started there were six timber harvest plans uh so areas of the forest that were going to be logged that had already been sold. So Cal Fire had entered into contracts with um, various parties about those sections of the forest. Public protest halted logging in uh, four of those, That and this was last year. And so a year has gone by, and those contracts are still sitting there, and they have not been fulfilled. Uh, the community is saying, you know, for all these reasons, and the County Valley Band of Pomo is saying, for all these reasons, those contracts should not be fulfilled. We should find another way forward. And there have been negotiations. There's been changes to those contracts, amendments made, right? Um, So ultimately, it is that contract, that financial interest. There's no safety reason. Um, A lot of the areas, like the timber harvest plan that kind of started all this is known as the Casper 500. It's near the town of Casper, hence the name. And if you go out in the forest there, you know, Jackson, is it's a variable forest. There's different areas of different quality and different tree size stand. Um, But in this section in particular, there's these really big, beautiful trees that were marked for harvest. And there's absolutely no safety justification for felling trees above a certain size um, because those are our forest protectors, right? Not our forest weakeners. Yes. So these are... What kind of trees? How big are these trees? How old are these trees that they want to cut? So these trees are uh, second-growth coastal redwoods. Um, we've actually, and um, larger Douglas firs as well, and we've actually found fallen pre-contact trees, both redwood and fir trees that we found fallen in these timber harvest plants that were here before settlers were here. Um, And that really should not be happening in our state forests, Um, especially, you know, the one of the big contentions that we have with Jackson um, is there's this narrative that we need logging, right? We need lumber, but we don't need second growth redwood. It's a luxury wood. It's like ivory. You can use it for decking or furniture. Um, And so there's really just no justification to continue cutting these trees. It's like killing elephants. Yeah, ivory, yeah. right. I like that. It's like killing elephants. These are, you know, my very good old friend, the late Judy Berry, did some mm-hmm. amazing photography. Uh, and one of the things she did was to take aerial photographs of these disappearing, these these marvelous, incredible trees that were disappearing you know you you drive on on the you drive on the uh on the the road you think oh they're 
there they go forever but when you when mm-hmm. she started taking pictures from the helicopter you saw that just about all the trees were gone all these beautiful extraordinary trees had disappeared had been taken down and clearly it's sabotaging our own ability to breathe on the planet earth <laughs> But I, I assume we're talking about these kinds of trees, and this is real, really what the battle is about, that the, it's really the battle for the future. One would think that uh, the people and those who are making these decisions would be on your side now, given the nature of global warning, warming and the, the fires and whatever. I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, California really postures itself as this green leader. Um, We like to think of our state as very climate progressive, very cutting edge. Uh, You know, those of us who are a little bit more radical, obviously, don't necessarily see it as cutting edge as the majority. But still, there's the the posturing and there's the political um, framing there. And yet we have this massive forest, this state property, public property being managed primarily for commercial timber harvest rather than for our collective common good. And 48,000 acres, you know, is massive as we can obviously put together mathematically. But if this was reclassified, if the mandate was changed, if the management plan was rewritten, um, it would constitute 12% of the state's protected coastal redwoods, 12%, just like that. So in this current political climate, with everything we know about climate change, with the state's 30 by 30 initiative, with Gavin Newsom rumored to be running for president, it's really the time to make these big, obvious changes for our collective good. So um, who owns Gavin? Um, The people who want to cut, (laughs) the people who don't want to cut. Never mind. Uh, You're listening to Flashpoints <laughs> on Pacifica Radio. People will not be surprised when I say that. Uh, we're speaking with Michelle McMillan. She is um, concerned about uh, the the cutting, the end of the pause in cutting, I should say, of the Jackson Demonstration State Forest. So uh, apparently the demonstration didn't work and now i think we need to just stand for the forest there's what plenty to next? demonstrate what in your battle yeah yes thank you sorry um yeah we're, there's there's plenty to demonstrate we could demonstrate good faith government to government consultations we could demonstrate honoring indigenous communities and their request for sovereignty uh, by following the leadership of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo and actually honoring co-management agreements instead of uh, what we're seeing now, the usual lip service. We could demonstrate forest restoration. As I think we've all known, if you've been out in the forest, logging can make ugly forests. Uh, we can demonstrate carbon sequestration. We can demonstrate climate mitigation. There's no need to let go of the idea of uh, demonstration of public land. Uh, it's just time to move past the commercial aspect and the prioritization of private profit over public interest. So what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, tomorrow we're going to have fun, as we always do. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, there will be a rally out front of the California Natural Resources Agency starting at 11 a.m., 
Uh, so that's 715 P Street in Sacramento, or the California Natural Resources Agency. Um, knowing this crowd, there will be at least some light singing, <laughs> and it'll be a good time. Um, and hopefully, you know, we're listened to, and hopefully that pause gets reinstated, and we can get back to the good work of redefining our forest for our communal future. Well, uh, we do appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us. We care about the trees, about the forest. Uh, it's a good friend of ours. Uh, we hope, <laughs> I hope next time I, I head north, there are some trees left. Uh, and we joke, but only a little bit, uh, because this is a real struggle. And these anybody who's really seen these trees and been near them and felt the power um, you know, it's really, it, it's an amazing thing. Uh, one stands in awe next to these trees. So thanks for what you do and really appreciate it. Uh, Michelle, if people want to get more information, is there a website, a place they can go, check it out? Find more you betcha. on here. Yep. Anyone wanting to learn more about this movement should head to savejackson.org. So that's savejackson.org. Uh, you can also check out mama, M-A-M-A dot tree dot Mendo on Instagram. Um, but I really recommend savejackson.org because we have other coalition member groups linked there as well. So it's a great landing page. There's, there's a lot of groups in this movement. Um, so it's a good place to start. Great. I'm, well, I'm going to head up as soon as I get off the microphone, I'm heading right up there and I'm going to hug one of those big old redwoods. Uh, be safe. Thanks for joining us on Flashpoints today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And guess what? That's it for another edition of your daily investigative news magazine over the Pacifica Radio Network. That's the people's truth to power, no holds barred, fight back. And that wraps Radio it up for another episode Network. of Flash. Stay with us. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.